Welcome to the Dental is Anything podcast, where we dive headfirst into the wonder and mystery of everything and anything dental. I'm your host, Matt Hopcraft. Welcome back to another episode of Dental is Anything. This week, we're talking about modern caries management and evidence-based practice. And to do this, I'm talking with Dr. Tim Keyes, a paediatric dentist based on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Tim grew up in Brisbane. He completed his undergraduate dentistry training at the University of Queensland, and then he worked for the Royal Australian Air Force as a dental officer. Following a stint in private practice, Tim then moved to Melbourne to do his postgraduate training as a paediatric dentist, and he graduated in 2018. He now works mostly as a private specialist, but he also works as a consultant to Queensland Health. Tim, it's really great to have you on Dental as Anything. Thanks, Matt. Very happy to be here. So look, this episode was sparked by a post on a dental social media forum that generated a bit of heat and you kind of just waded in boots and all with a take that I think a few people thought was probably a little bit controversial or or perhaps even that you were just kind of plain wrong. But I found myself siding with your view and I thought it'd be really interesting and worthwhile to delve into that a little bit more. Now, rather than kind of go into the specifics of the actual case, which is obviously a bit challenging for us to do uh, on a podcast... If we just describe the general kind of nature of it, because it's the general principles, I think, that are that are important rather than a specific case. We were presented with uh, a, a single radiograph, a clinical photo, two teeth, one that had a restoration and one that may or may not have had caries. And it wasn't really apparent on the on the radiograph whether that was the case or not, certainly on the clinical photo, maybe. And the question that was posed was, you know, should we replace the restoration and should we restore the adjacent tooth? And a lot of people who responded said, yes, we should definitely do both of those. But you had a, a different view. What what was that different view and, and why did you have that different view? So, Matt, my view regarding that was that um, based on the information provided, we couldn't actually make an informed decision whether or not any of those teeth would actually benefit from restorative intervention. And I have to say, I feel like the post was initially... Uh, set up, as in um, it was a it was a practice owner, I believe, asking regarding one of their recent associates, who was a new grad, who was told that you know their demonstrators said that they wouldn't intervene on that, and I think it was to try to highlight that this was a really wrong approach, and that you know by by not intervening on a situation such as this, you, you're actually doing the patient a disservice. So the view that I had there was based on that information. The, the there was no actual significant evidence that any restorative intervention was required immediately. And that's the main point we're trying to get to is that if we decide to do a restoration, there has to be enough evidence there for us to intervene immediately. And if there's not, and we're probably going to get to this as we discuss this further, rather than having a if in doubt, let's fill it approach, we're trying to follow more of the international evidence that, if in doubt, preventatively manage and review. So when you say not enough evidence, what what sort of evidence do you think we need to have when we're making this decision about whether to intervene restoratively or not? Well, we need longitudinal evidence, you know, uh, and and the best thing, best reproducible evidence we have is actually radiographs. Um, and so putting a clinical photo up doesn't really tell us a great deal. I mean, if there's a big glaring, big hole there, well, yeah, you're going to see that. And yes, we know that we can tell from tactile sensation and colour about regarding how active caries lesions are. However, radiographs are excellent. They actually put up a radiograph, which is brilliant. And on that radiograph, it did show some radiolucencies underlying a restoration that clinically showed some 
you know, marginal ditching and breakdown. However, the issue that a lot of practitioners go off is that they will take a radiograph and see a radiolucency underlying a restoration. But there's no evidence that that radiolucency wasn't there at the time of placement. So actually what I find myself commonly doing now, because the evidence dictates to us that there really isn't this terminology of infected and affected dentine, which is what a lot of practitioners are still referring to, what we tend to remove is the really soft stuff and this is particularly important for very deep lesions. And you can leave sort of the, the there's lots of different terminology for the firm or harder, but still stained or discolored dentine. So radiographically, that is going to show up probably as a radiolucency under your restoration because there's less mineral structure in that dentine. However, you know, and I know when I've done it, that I have removed all the soft stuff that has to be removed. And most importantly, I've in, in put in a really good seal. So if I get a, a big hole in a six and I'm going to do something like that, these days what I actually do is I take a radiograph immediately post-restoration, noting that that's the equivalent of two bananas, so I'm not overly concerned about the radiation dose there, but then that is essentially the passport for that patient because I don't tend to see a lot of them long-term. So I send that back to my referring dentist with a note saying, hey, I did this big filling, Yes, there's a radiolucency under it. I'm very confident it is the same. And for some patients that I have now been seeing where our clinic has longer term, you know, that initial radiograph is crucial at encouraging us to avoid restorative intervention again. So a big part of that is obviously, as you've said, it's that it's that repeat radiograph so that we can see what's happening over time. And, and probably I think a part of this then relates to this issue of regular dental visits, but also continuity of care, right? That if... If it's the same clinician who's seeing something over a period of time, um, or that you've got those records that go back a number of years, particularly the radiograph, as you've said, then that's really important. But if we don't have the same clinician or if we don't have that history, then that's where we get get into into a little bit of trouble. Is is that, you know, is that a sort of a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think the worst thing sometimes patients can do is change dentists. Because every time they go to a new dentist or dental practitioners, because this also applies to oral health therapists and dental therapists, because every time they change to a new practitioner, if, if that person, a lot of us don't do it. You know, we don't look at the previous radiographs or records very well. We just look and say, oh, shit, there's, sorry, I shouldn't swear, but, you know, there's a few radiolucencies under these things or that feeling looks a little bit old and worn. Uh, that, 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 and so they'll get, they'll, they'll get replaced, all these restorations. And I, I think what we're forgetting whenever we're doing any of that type of thing is that a restoration doesn't actually address the underlying problem. You know, if we managed diabetes like we manage dental decay, we would have thousands of people walking around with no limbs. So, you know, we amputate tooth structure to place a restoration. We amputate healthy tooth structure to enable us to place a restoration. And the reason we're doing it is to restore form and function to the tooth and reduce plaque accumulation. So if you've got a functional restoration that doesn't look very pretty and it's been like that for several years, what's to say that it could not survive in a form, function and avoiding plaque accumulation for several more years? And the big thing we're trying to get people to do these days with regard to carious lesion management is that we want people to die with their own teeth. And and by every we do a restoration, we put that tooth into the restorative cycle, which we've all heard of, and everything that we do invasively will fail, and it's just a matter of when. 
space, the longer we can delay intervention or repeat intervention for a tooth, the less likely that tooth is going to require either complex dental treatment, such as root canals, or extraction and implant replacement. Absolutely. I, I really like that analogy of diabetes. You know, when I, was, when I was sort of preparing for talking to you today, I was thinking about this and, and you know, a couple of the comments that on, on this social media post and that we see kind of quite often, people sort of talk about, you know, oh, should, should I watch the tooth or should I monitor the tooth? And, and I think that kind of comes up a lot in these discussions. And it's, it's a phrase that really, really bothers me. Um, it's a really old school kind of phrase. You know, we put a watch on this. And I, I remember seeing old paper dental card records from probably the 70s and 80s with a little watch, you know, a little W on, on teeth. And to me, it's a, it's a very passive phrase, you know, watching, and it and it gets us into this idea of, um, which we might talk about later. You know, is this is this kind of supervised neglect? Because I think in people's minds, the minute that you say watch or monitor, really what we're saying is we, we're just going to sit back and do nothing. And you know that that kind of medical analogy. I go to the doctor. The doctor says, "Oh, Matt, you know you've you've stacked on a few kilos over summer. You're a bit, um, you know, we've checked your BMI and you're over over thirty. Um, that's not too good. Well, I'd better just watch that and see what happens. And when you come back in six or twelve months' time, we'll weigh you again and and see." That's not what the doctor's going to do. They're going to actively intervene. They're going to look at the the cause of the problem and they're going to work with me to try and reduce that cause. And, th- and that's really then what we're talking about with these sort of lesions, isn't it? Not that we're just going to passively watch it, that we're going to actively intervene and that active intervention isn't a restoration. It's active preventive intervention. And that's kind of really then what we're trying to focus on. Otherwise, yeah, we'd have doctors just cutting things off left, right and centre as, as we seem to do in dentistry. Uh, uh, absolutely, and, and that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Well, I'm not saying, you know, change the mindset from if in doubt, fill to if in doubt, do nothing. We're saying if in doubt, do prevention and follow up. You know, and I completely agree with you in in what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's the bit that we we're sort of missing, and and it seems you know, and I mean, probably remiss of me to not mention this in in the uh, in the intro and in your kind of bio, but. Your your research um, while you were doing your, your postgraduate training was was actually in this area of caries management, you know, understanding caries management of, of primary and secondary teeth or permanent dentition. Um, and so you've got a really good handle on the evidence, but it, to me it seems like there's this disconnect between what the evidence kind of really clearly tells us that we can we can prevent caries from progressing further, we can arrest it, um, and that we don't always need to to intervene restoratively early. And, and what people are actually doing out in practice, why do you think there's such a, that, you know, that disconnect between evidence and, and practice actually exists? Um, because academics don't live in the real world, right, Matt? <laughs> that's, that's funny because I, I kind of feel like I live in the real world most of the time, but, but maybe. <laughs> well, there's this mindset that, you know, and, and I did allude to this a little bit on the post. So my, my research, as you said, was on caries lesion management in primary and permanent teeth. And it was the first time it had been done in Australia. And some of these surveys have been done for, for quite some time in other countries, particularly Scandinavian countries. And I'm really keen to do it again, but I just had a third child. So I'm a bit time poor at the moment. Um, so, because I'd love to see if there's been a change, because we did this back in 2016. So, um, um, but essentially what we're asking is like, when would dental practitioners, including therapists, restoratively intervene on a tooth? And we've got a pretty good response rate. You know, we've got about nearly 900 dentists 
uh, that participated and about 250 oral health therapists and dental therapists, which is a pretty reasonable survey return these days. And, and, and we found on that that we are generally um, highly interventive practitioners here in Australia. We're the fifth most invasive country in the world. Um, we don't have a trend for us, but because we don't have a previous um, uh, a survey such as what we've done, which is why I'd love to see if we did it again, what's that trending like? And what I found really surprising about all that was we expected new graduates with more up-to-date knowledge of carious lesion management and dental carious management, two different issues there, and they're commonly confused. But we thought that new grads would be less invasive. And what we found that was actually older practitioners particularly quite you know, ones closer to retirement, were actually far less invasive than new practitioners. And so you're right, I don't think the, uni- I mean, I do think the universities have a fair bit to answer for on their education of dental caries and caries lesion management. Uh, and that's because the way in which we teach dentistry is we predominantly focus on surgical skills. The only real difference to that would be old medicine. Um, as a subject, which is more phys- physician skills. So we, we spend all this time practicing drilling teeth. And look, that's important, but it's, but what's not sexy is, is, is physician work and managing dental decay. So these, these, these patients go, sorry, these new grads go out into the real world and they might have reasonably up-to-date knowledge, but what do they want to do? They don't want to go and put fluoride and educate patients. They want to drill teeth. Particularly now, I'm finding is they're getting less exposure to real patients throughout their training, and then they'll also talk to their associates or um, uh, practice owners who will say, "Mate, I've been out for 15 years. Everything you learn at uni is rubbish. Um, this is the real world, and these type of things you wouldn't you wouldn't sit on them." Because I remember I saw a case three years back where it had a sealant on it, and the tooth needed a bloody root canal. You know, and, and this all boils down to something what was called carry scripts, and we've all got one. And what it is is how we manage decay. And commonly what happens is we view the consequences of not acting as worse than acting invasively. And by that I mean most practitioners, and I reckon it will be well over 50% of the majority, wouldn't feel that bad if they drilled a tooth that actually didn't need a filling. You know, they, they drilled it and thought, that looks a bit funny. There's a bit of a shadow there. I'll pick a drill up and drill it. No, there actually wasn't any decay into dentine. I'll put a filling in. That's all cool. They might tell the patient, hey, we got here. Lucky we got that early. You know, that's why it's not very big. We would view that as less bad than the, the converse scenario being like, there's a shadow there. Let's sit on this and preventatively manage this and, and observe it and then requiring quite a deep restoration three or four years down the track. And so this leads our entire society here in Australia to be more invasively managed. And it's just viewed so poorly. And we've all heard about it. Oh, that practitioner, mate, he just sits on everything. He just watches everything. He just watches his patients, these patients' mouths fall to peace. He's a terrible practitioner. He does supervised neglect, right? And it's not supervised neglect if you're preventatively managing the teeth. That's yeah. I think that's that's a really that's a really good point and really well made, Tim. Um, I think when we see that kind of consequence, or the, I, I guess for me again, it's, it's a disconnect around risk and understanding risk and consequence. So, you know, in that in that scenario where we are actively trying to prevent or arrest caries, 
and we get the patient back in six months' time and it progresses further, it's not, it's, it's not going to progress to the stage where we need to do root canal treatment or extract the tooth. Um, and yet there's this perception that, that that's what's going to happen. And yet if we cut into a tooth that doesn't need a restoration, then we've consigned that tooth to that we mentioned before, the restorative cycle. We know that that restoration will need to be replaced and need to be replaced and the filling will get bigger and then we end up with a crack in the tooth. And then we, you know, so those sort of problems, I think that 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 misalignment of the consequences of, of intervening too early versus not intervening at all, a, a way out of alignment. Do you, do you think, I mean, I, I want to go back to this idea that, that um, you know, older dentists are perhaps a little bit more conservative. Do you think that the, in part that that's because they've seen some of those consequences and, and that that's the, the learning by experience bit? Absolutely. And I think, Matt, also, they have seen their own work fail. And the sad thing is, everything we do restoratively or in, invasively will fail. Um, so so if, we, if you stay in the same practice long enough, seeing the same patient, you will just see your failures crap up. Now, I'm not necessarily saying they're failures of the quality of your work, because keep in mind, the resin material in itself can't fail, right? It's just a plastic material. But what will obviously fail around that will be the bond onto the tooth structure or the patient will get, and I really dislike this terminology of what's called secondary caries. Or, you know, they'll get marginal breakdown and they get decay around the restoration. Um, so, like, it, it, it's not necessarily the quality. But yes, if you do poor quality restorations, for example, you're not using rubber dam, you'll see a in that case, not using rubber dams, these are 300% increase in failure rates. Um, however, what we're seeing about here is that everything that happens has a finite lifespan. Same as your car, same as your fridge. Okay? So if we can delay intervention, well, the patient actually could benefit. And I nearly dare say there'll be scenarios when you look at it and you're like, and we see it all the time in the job that I do, where it's like, that lesion is at the dental enamel junction, the DEJ, or even just slightly into it. Now, I could be justified then in restoring that because there's a reasonably high probability that that tooth has a cavity in it, right? And we only need to place a restoration when the tooth has a cavity, right? Otherwise, we can preventatively manage it. So we think, okay, but conversely, like what we discussed before, now, if I manage that with silver diamine fluoride or SDF, and then got the patient back in four months and repeated that radiograph, there's no possible way that thing is in the pulp. It just isn't possible in four to six months. So essentially what will happen is they'll come back in four to six months and it might be exactly the same. Okay, cool, I'll repeat my silver diamond so I'd maybe see them another four or six months. And then yes, it means that the patient has to have long-term follow-up. So they have to be on board for that. You know, I see patients five or six hours away and it may not be feasible for them to take that approach. So there is still to some regard, a patient-dependent approach here. However, what will happen is it will motivate the patient, hopefully, to improve their oral hygiene because they've got four or five teeth. What I always say to my patients, they're, they're teetering on the cliff edge. They're about to fall over. Let's push them back, okay? Now, you then preventatively manage it. One progresses, cool. Well, you put a filling, okay? So, so that patient will be able to four or five fillings from the initial time they saw you. They might end up with one restoration, you know, five or ten years down the track and the other lesions might be rock solid and firmly arrested. Um, I still remember Matt when I uh, moved from the defense force, which actually is a very aggressive approach to dentistry. 
and, and the reason the justification that is, oh, we have to do lots of fillings on teeth because um, if we send someone on deployment for six months, we can't have them dealing with a hole over there. So they're actually very aggressive. Well, they were when I was going through back in uh, 2000 and, and you know, the early 2010s. Um, and then I went and worked in private practice in Noosa, and I still recall this one patient who was a, who was a young girl, probably about 25, who was going to go to England for two years. And she'd been seeing my boss, um, Chris, every six months for about 15 years. And he had been watching this little premolar with decay at the DEJ. And I still recall, it's one of my biggest regrets ever, I thought, hey, you're going to wait to England for the next couple of years. He's been sitting on this. You know, there's a good chance that it could be a cavity. Let's drill it. And I drilled it. And then I went back after I did that. Because he said to me, mate, why'd you put a filling in that one for? I've been sitting on that. And then I looked back at all the old x-rays and realized what I'd put a filling in had looked exactly the same for about eight years. And I still feel horrible to this day that I've given that patient probably a 25-year-old, there's probably a reasonable chance now that that one four in her mouth is going to end up with a root canal before she dies. And it, and it goes back to, as you were saying before, you know, it's it's the longitudinal data. It's looking at those radiographs over a period of time. Do you think, and there's, there's two things that you've, that you've sort of mentioned in there, and I think one is about making sure that the patients are willing to engage in in this process as well and and i mean a it's it is it's about case selection but it is you know everything's about case selection with with our patients um but is there a perception that you know patients just aren't going to engage in in this kind of um intense preventive activity and therefore that's a bit of a barrier and then the other part that sort of ties into that too is you know how much of this is a perception of practicing in a very defensive way from from a legal point of view you know people are concerned if I, you know, maybe part of your thinking with, with that case was, well, if, you know, if she goes away for two years and something happens and that lesion suddenly gets um, much, much bigger and she needs root canal treatment, will that come back and reflect badly on me as the clinician? Will there be some kind of legal repercussions as well? So, you know, do, do, do both of those things then influence the way that we are looking at how we manage these, these sorts of cases? I absolutely agree. I still think in some regards, a lot of dental practitioners practice quite the old medical paternalistic model of healthcare, whereby um, I'm not saying that we tell patients what to do. That's not it. But I I feel like sometimes we remove choice for patients on how they would like their mouth or their teeth managed. So for example, someone will do a new patient exam, take some some radiographs and they'll They'll pop up and say, hey, look, you've got two big holes here, and that's the whole reason you came into that because it's two sore teeth. But you've also actually got four other cavities in this area. So you need a grand total of six fillings. And the patient says, okay, well, I don't know how to read a radiograph. Uh, That's your job. So I I agree, I need six fillings. But rather than going in that pathway, I guess educating our patients, saying, hey, look, these two big holes, we do need need to restore them, right? You've got four other teeth that have some version of decay in them, whether that be, you know, early enamel or, you know, into the DEJ or at the DEJ or into dentine, you know, we can manage two of these preventatively. And these two here are a bit borderline. How would you like this to be managed? Would you like us to take a preventive focused approach and apply silver diamine fluoride with you accepting that you're going to need ongoing follow-up and good plaque control? Because you cannot prevent it if you can't clean it. So if you're not flossing and not brushing with a fluoride toothpaste and you're not coming back in six months, look, it's not going to work very well. Alternatively, we can put fillings in them 
But just be aware that, the, you know, that will fix the problem over the next probably decade. But I might have ended up putting fillings in teeth that may never need them over your life. And I reckon if you gave that to 99 out of 100 people, I can guarantee I know which one they would choose. The one that's going to be probably less costly immediately, it's going to be less uncomfortable immediately because I don't need fillings. And it also motivates them to keep coming back. So, yes, you may financially lose out on placing two fillings now for $500 or something. But longer term, that patient might be like, gee, that dentist is bloody expensive. I've just spent, you know, 1500 bucks getting a few teeth fixed. Um, you know, I can't afford to go back now for two years. Instead, they might spend, let's say, $500 in getting a couple of teeth fixed and some prevention, but they'll come back every four to six months because you've given them a compelling reason to come back. So they might end up actually spending more at your practice over their life with you having to do less difficult work on them and everybody wins. Yeah, it, it, and it, you know, it kind of ties into an argument that we're, or, you know, discussion that we've been having a, a lot too around you know, what's our role as, as a health professional and it's around preventing disease um, and trying to make people healthier um, and not necessarily kind of kind of going down that path all of the time. I mean, I, th- I think obviously a lot of what you're talking about too, that the, there's this real importance around really good clinical records and informed consent as part of this process to to kind of push back against this idea that it's, that it's you know, supervised neglect or that there's some concerns. How, how much do you think our our model of private dentistry in particular um, that's driven by fee-for-service that, that you know, emphasise or, or rewards, I guess, um, restorative intervention over prevention. How much do you, do you think that is a driver? And I don't know whether your research sort of picked that up, you know, when you're saying that Australia is a very interventionist country restoratively. Do you think that that the, the system that we have, that remuneration system, fee-for-service, is a driver of that? I, I do, and but I don't. I don't. I don't think. I think the vast majority of dental practitioners want to practice ethically. You know, they want yep. to do what they think is right for the patient. And for some people, what they think is right, for example, might be to put fillings in teeth. You know, early. And as I said, they, it's not because they want to hurt the patient or make a lot of money. It's it, it's more along the lines that they think that that's what's correct. And and. And but our system, I think, contributes to majorly to that problem because you're spot on. Like the remuneration for preventive care is really, really poor. Like, for example, the child dental benefit scheme will give you two hundred and sixty dollars to put a stainless steel crown on a tooth. You know, uh, which which can take you. You know, or you do a whole crown. It's about nearly two hundred dollars, which will take you about three minutes to put on. Conversely, to actually spend some time educating the patient and putting silver diamine fluoride on, neither of those item codes are covered. So if you're running a, a clinic that is bulk billing everybody, uh, you know, it, 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 is, it is unaffordable to keep providing preventive care unless you charge those patients privately. The public system, conversely, is so badly under-resourced by our government that they're, const- they're just constantly putting fires out and burning houses. You know, there just is no prevention occurring really at all, other than perhaps in some states, maybe with the school dental services and the, and the dental van. So I, I definitely think it contributes. I don't think it means to do to do, do things incorrect. Obviously, there's a small portion of practitioners which maybe got caught out in that chronic diseases dental scheme of practicing purely for profit. Um, but 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 
the system is definitely geared to intervention rather than prevention. Um, and so I think that feeds back to a whole host of things like our university training, teaching of surgical skills and not physician skills. Um, so there's a whole of model approach here that would need a change to to stimulate this. And the good thing is we do actually have data on this because if you look at the Scandinavian countries, for example, they um, parents can't access certain welfare payments and obviously they've got very high tax rates. I mean, in Australia we always criticise their tax rates but our tax rates are actually quite on par with theirs now. You know, they've got quite high tax rates but the, the converse is they've got very good public health uh, services as well. So all children have to go to see a dental practitioner. If they don't, the parents can incur a welfare cost. They might lose some, some family tax benefits, for example. And so that entire model sets patients up for early touch base with a dental team and then ongoing reviews. And the system is not set up to reward intervention. It's just set up to do, I guess, what the patient needs, whether that is prevention or intervention. And they have historically been shown to be the least interventive interventive. They've got long-term follow-up data about every five years they run this survey. To put it in perspective, in 2016, I believe we were about as interventive as Scandinavian dentists were in the early 2000s. So we're roughly 15 years behind where other countries are. Wow, that's that's quite sobering. I mean, we're obviously in this really interesting space at the moment where we're looking at reform in the in the dental sector and um, you know funding type reform. And I think you know clearly some improvements around the child dental benefit schedule, for example, that that really you know we do need to emphasise and and have better um, better funding mechanisms, but but better emphasis on prevention through there. But it's one thing to have the funding, and and as you sort of keep coming back to, it's the education piece and. You know, I'm, I'm kind of really then interested in, you know, why aren't we getting that bit right? You know, where is this disconnect? The evidence is out there. The evidence is, is pretty clear. Um, you know, clearly we need to pick up our game in, in dental schools a little bit more. But, you know, is, is, there, a, is there a role for CPDs, mandatory CPD, not, not kind of meeting the need here where, you know, as, as practitioners, we're supposed to be self-reflective. We're supposed to look at the evidence. We're supposed to look at the gaps that we might have and, and work on trying to um, improve our practice as as the evidence base constantly changes. And, and clearly, we know more now about how to manage caries than we did, you know, 30 years ago when I graduated or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. But that doesn't seem to be translating into practice. So, you know, what what do we do in in that kind of space? Is it and is it really just about having these conversations a little bit more frequently? Well, Matt, I completely agree with you that 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 the education space regarding CPD um, this this just isn't discussed. Like uh, I, I I constantly I've seen it in many places before. For example, you go to like an ADA Congress, there will be uh, a lecture on, you know, how to do six sexy veneers by a really renowned prosthodontist, you know, and, and that thing will be full, full chocolates to the, to the, to the roof. There'll be 500 dental practitioners in that room. You know, conversely, they'll run a competing stream next door and it'll be on, you know, up-to-date caries management. And that thing, there'll be crickets in there. There'll probably be 50 or 60 people that will be attending that and it'll, it'll, they'll be going into it thinking this is going to be a yawn fest. I've got to wonder, but how many of those 500 practitioners that are going to attend that veneer are actually commonly doing veneers on patients, you know? They might go by and think, okay, cool, I reckon I'm going to start giving this a crack and doing a few more veneers. Conversely, how much do dental practitioners manage carious lesions? And we do it all day, every day. 
So I I I agree with you. There, there is no significant driver for people to update their knowledge on dental care management or caries lesion management because um, A, it doesn't make money. Uh, B, it's not sexy. Uh, and, and, and C, a lot of practitioners, like we discussed before, have that mindset before they even go in there along the lines of, well, this person giving me this lecture is just an academic. They're not in the real world. You know, you can't just splash some silver fluoride around and hope for the best. And um, and what I think that's a real missed opportunity. And that's not what we're saying, that we don't treat lesions. My entire job, you know, I, I work in a hospital, you know, one day a week doing massively invasive dental care for, for young and, and older special needs patients. So I definitely do a lot of intervention. But there needs to be appropriate cases for where we do do prevention and a focus on it. So how could you fix it? I, to be honest with you, I, I despise more regulation and red tape just generally across, but I don't think the mandatory 20 hours of CPD has fixed this problem. Um, and so you you wonder, like, is there a requirement that, you know, like like there is that you can do a component that's scientific and you can do a component that's non-scientific. Is, is there a requirement there that, you know, you need to have uh, an update on, you know, a couple of two hours every year on, on preventive dentistry. Uh, I can't see anyone enacting that. I imagine just the sheer uproar uh, amongst the dental community if, if they were forced to uh, do CPD that they didn't want to do. To be honest, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that would necessarily necessarily solve the problem either. I mean, I think it's it's a more ingrained kind of issue that that we're dealing with. Um, I, I I love it every time you say you know academics don't live in in the real world, and th- there is there is this real again you know it's it's a disconnect um, that that a lot of practitioners seem to have. Um, you know, a lot of this evidence um, around caries in this particular example, is collected by clinician researchers. These are people who, yes, they might be an an academic, but they're also working in clinical practices, in private practices, in public practices, and they are living and breathing the evidence that they are collecting and and disseminating. So this this kind of idea that, um, you know, an an, an academic, we, we can't listen to or we can't trust what academics do because they, they aren't in the real world. I mean, there is no, there is no separation of this, you know, the private practice is the real world and, and everything else isn't. I mean, caries is caries no matter where it, it sits, right? So I, I, t- to me, that argument is just, it's just a strange one. Um, and then, then there's this bit about, you know, well, you know I, I can exercise my clinical judgment. So yes, there's evidence out there, but, you know, in my clinical judgment, which kind of gets back to what you've been saying, you know, people are looking at intervening a little bit earlier because in their hands, they know that it gives them the best success rate. So, you know, a, a question without notice, how successful are you at at arresting caries, at preventing caries, at, at taking this more? Because you're in the real world, right? You're not an academic. You're in the real world. Does it work for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. We go through bottles of silver diamine for right. So I've got oral health therapists who work in my clinic now. So traditionally, we used to be the model of the traditional paediatric dentist, which is patient referred in with problem, I fix problem, and send patient back out to the gen- to back to the referring practitioner. And um, and we, we still do that obviously a lot. We, we're not set up. I'm not set up to take my referring dentist patients by any means. But but the way in which we now manage, obviously, which is which is informed by trying to do a com- combination of intervention and prevention, is that we do sometimes need to 
follow some of these patients up long term, or for example, you know, they're not kids that are. How do I put this? They're not good, 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 fun, easy kids to manage. Uh, so the general practitioner uh, may not necessarily want the child back because they're uh, a little bit of a handful to manage. So they end up staying in our clinic uh, longer term, and that's why we we got OHTs to manage those severe anxiety kids or behavioural needs, special needs kids, or to manage those patients that our referrers will send to us and say, hey, look, this kid just keeps getting new holes and every time I put a filling in, it falls out. They just keep getting more and more holes. Can you help us, you know, put a, pull this up? And I'm not doing anything special by any means. Anybody can do what we do. And, and we use a lot of silver diamine fluoride, oral hygiene education, and ongoing follow-up and recourse. And to, to be honest with you, the two most important components of that is the ongoing follow-up and the silver diamine fluoride. The oral hygiene is important, but it improves naturally as you will see the patient more frequently because you're able to have that discussion rather than just you just lecturing them. You need to brush for two minutes, you've got to floss. You actually get them back every four months and you say, hey, look, you're brushing pretty well, but you're missing this area. And that's where those little holes are. So we need you to follow up. The evidence shows us, Matt, that silver diamine fluoride in appropriate cases has an arrest rate of 80%. Okay, both in primary and permanent teeth. Where I mean by appropriate cases there, that is where you can do plaque control. You know, if you've got a three-year-old with a, a half their lower second primary molar missing and full of plaque, putting silver diamine fluoride on that is not going to get that tooth through nine years. It's very, very suitable for those sort of definitely all the early enamel lesions or even those ones that are into the DEJ and just in that outer third, whereby you're thinking, Let's just see if we can arrest this. And I, I would firmly, and I've got hundreds of patients um, that I could show of longitudinal radiographs where silver diamine fluoride has been highly successful, along with those other approaches of follow-up and good, good oral hygiene, at, at avoiding decay. Now, keep in mind, uh, silver diamine fluoride in appropriate cases has an 80% success rate if applied biannually, just so twice, two times in the first year. An intracoronal restoration placed in a primary tooth has on average, if it's more than one surface, so a two-surface restoration, has an annual failure rate roughly 15%. Wow. So you've got silver diamine fluoride. Let's say you've got a lesion at the DEJ, right? You put silver diamine fluoride, that's an 80% success rate. You'll arrest that lesion, which means the patient may never need a filling in that tooth before it exfoliates. I'm talking primary teeth here, but the same logic applies for permanent teeth. Conversely, I go and put a filling in that tooth. Every year, it has a 15% annual failure rate. Pretty compelling. So, yeah. So it's highly, highly, highly successful. Yeah. Tim, I think this is this has been really, really valuable in you know kind of covering some of the some of the really important issues around modern caries management. For me, I think the the key takeaway message is is you know, the continuity of care is really important um, and in aiding that clinical decision-making process, having that time series of, of radiographs and clinical photos and the patient record. And if you don't have that, if it's a new patient to your practice, then getting those records from the from the previous practice. And if it's in your practice, making sure that you go back and look at the, the, the patient record and looking through that history. And then sort of really trying to get down into this understanding of, of what the risk factors are for this particular patient and how amenable that patient might be to, to um, you know, addressing some of those risk factors. And then, and then thinking really 
you know, what's the worst case scenario if we if we try and be really aggressive with our prevention and with our efforts to to arrest this tooth, arrest this carious lesion, and it doesn't work and the patient comes back in six months, then we kind of really haven't lost anything because that, that lesion is not going to progress anyway. Um, and so, you know, this is this is really the way that we should be thinking about managing these carious lesions. Would you would you say that's a, a, a fair kind of uh, assessment? Absolutely. And so, Matt, we run um, courses uh, a couple of times every year. I, I lecture quite a lot on preventive dentistry just to, you know, more, more local communities and things. And um, I always get people, you know, that mostly they're, they don't want to put their hand up and ask, but I always come up and ask me, say, mate, like, you know, what happens if I, if I, um, you know, if I just do what you did, which is, you know, repair the restoration or, or do prevention on it, and the patient comes back in a year time and they need a root canal and they're really annoyed at me or upset at me. And I've said to each one of them, I will come to court and represent you for free because you haven't, you haven't just ignored the lesion. You haven't misdiagnosed it. You did diagnose it as an issue, right? You documented it. You took preventative approaches, which was the appropriate treatment for that tooth at that time. Now, the fact that the patient didn't get the follow-up or the patient didn't clean their teeth well is not actually something that you've done wrong because you haven't performed supervised neglect. You haven't neglected this problem. You actually addressed it in an evidence-based way and it didn't work. That's okay because that also feeds back to the patient. So you will be defensible every single day of the week. Conversely, if you just take your radiographs and say everything looks sweet, see the patient in 12 months, and then they turn up with a big hole, that was actually there on the radiograph. Well, that's a problem, but you're not doing that. So really just, yeah, looking looking at what that evidence tells us and, and following what the evidence-based guidelines um, are really there telling us to do. And Matt, I wanted to just get yep. back just quickly. I know you how I said, I keep saying, obviously, you know, satirically about this academic don't live in the real world. Yeah, you know, the reason obviously I say that is because I actually despise that saying because, um, you know, everybody, most practitioners, you know, you go to their websites or something, right? Now, they'll list all the courses that they've done and all the evidence-based dentistry that they're practicing, right? And who are they relying on to provide that evidence to them? And it's academics. And it is not a sexy job. Like, it is not fun. And as you said, most, there's not that many pure academics anymore because it's not a fun job. Financially, there's better ways to make money. Um, and, and so you do. Most, a lot of our evidence comes from dual practitioners, those who are living in the real world and practicing actual dentistry and also providing academic work. So this dismissive tone that we give to academics, you're actually dismissing evidence-based dentistry. You know, you're sort of practicing you know, Stone Age, you know, dentistry, if you're just ignoring this evidence base. And, and I, I commonly get it. You know, we talk about restorative materials that are appropriate for primary teeth. You know, one that's not appropriate is glass on a cement for multi-surface restoration. And, you know, we've done education posts on this before. And I've, I've had my ass torn out of me by other general dentists saying that, no, no, look, you know, in my experience or anecdotally, you know, this works well in my hands and it's always worked well in my hands. But that's not evidence-based practice. And that's what we have to keep coming back to and what the CPD issue was meant to address. But like what we just discussed before, I don't think it is. So I actually take my hat off to all the academics that, like yourself, Matt, you know, that have pumped out all this good quality stuff because, you know, I just did a survey. I didn't actually really contribute anything to the academic base. 
all I did was just get a current status of where Australian dentists are at. Uh, and, 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 and so I, I think we, we do need to have a lot more respect for evidence-based dentistry and we've got to have a lot more respect for our academics and hopefully get more people engaged in the process of academics um, uh, in, in dentistry as well. But that's a whole other separate issue. It, it is a whole other issue. But, I mean, you're right. If we, if we purport to be an evidence-based health profession, then we, we have to go where the evidence takes us. And if this is where the evidence has taken us, then, you know, that's, that's the way that we should be practising. I agree we should be looking how to involve more practitioners in in clinical practice-based research and I think that that's a whole other um, area that we could get into it at, at, at another point in time um, and and you know you're right that if we're just solely relying on on clinical judgment then we're going to continue to have the variability that we see out there that that isn't putting the patient's best interests at heart Tim this is as always it's been a really fun and eye-opening discussion so thanks for joining us and hopefully we can get you back on again sometime soon and we can talk more about um, you know other things that that are important in the way that we manage um, manage dental care in this country absolutely Matt as always a pleasure to talk to you and I think it's I think it's great that uh, great great that this topic has sparked a bit more conversation I hope that everybody that was listening uh, you know got something out of it Fantastic. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to Dental as Anything. Till next time.